Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you're the mom the maid the keeper of the cookies you do it all and you look good doing it it's parenthood on a mother level here's your host denise hanitka hi everyone I'm Denise Sinitka, and you are listening to a brand new episode of On a Mother Level. Episode 94 is a tough listen, and it was a tough interview to do. But I urge you to listen to it because this story is so important. This is the story of Theo Wolf, forever 12 weeks old. He passed when he was just 12 weeks old. And his mother, Lisa Wolf, is here today to talk about unsafe sleep practices. It was such a tragic loss for so many reasons, one of them being the fact that there is a woman who is now facing criminal charges because of Theo's death. And out of respect for Lisa and her family and for Theo, I'm choosing not to share any of those specific details as a journalist today. Rather, I'm going to keep this interview about Lisa's story. And to tell you about Lisa's story, I'm going to start by reading the post that she put on Facebook on the Theo Wolf Foundation page to mark two years since Theo died. And so this is her writing now. They say time heals all wounds. Bullshit. There's not enough time in this world to heal this wound, to heal this anguish and heartbreak. Two years later, and the heartbreak, guilt, and grief are just as present as the day Theo was taken from us. Two years of missed milestones and memories with Theo. Two years of celebrating holidays and special occasions with a piece of my heart missing. Two years of trying to survive the hard days, wondering how do I continue on with a piece of my heart and soul gone. Two years of feeling such guilt for sending you to a place we thought we could trust. Two years of guilt and anger for knowing this was 100% preventable and that someone's negligence took you from us. Two years where there isn't a day that goes by that I don't think of you and miss you. Over the past two years, I've had so many people tell me how strong I am. But if I'm being honest, I'm not strong. I'm in survival mode, just doing what I can to make it through the day. Two years ago, at 3.08 p.m., my world shattered and I'm still trying to piece it back together. And so I'm going to let Lisa tell her story from there. It was two years ago 
on August 29th that Theo Wolf died at just 12 weeks old. Unexpectedly, and as Lisa will tell you, it 100% could have been prevented. But this is her story, and I'm going to let her tell it through this interview. She starts out by introducing her family, her support system, and she tells the story of getting pregnant with Theo, Theo's life, and how Theo died. And she talks about her life today and her work going forward through the Theo Wolf Foundation. She is working to make sure no one forgets the name Theo Wolf and that his death helps teach others about the importance of safe sleep. And her foundation is now working to provide safe sleep education and materials to families all over this area. And so my guest today is Lisa Wolf. My husband is John, and we have been married eight years now. I have an 11-year-old stepson, Noah, and uh, a four-year-old, Owen, who is in preschool, and then Theo, who is forever 12 weeks, and then uh, Lainey, who is now 10 months old. So we we have our hands full. (laughs) So you're still like pretty fresh postpartum. Like, how are you feeling? Are you guys getting in your groove? Yeah. Yeah. We, I think we found a groove. It's been a lot with, with three kids. Um, there's always somebody moving and and grooving at home. Uh, Lainey is now walking. And so she is into everything. Lainey walking at 10 months. Slow it down, girl. I know. Right. Yeah, she started really before she's turned 10 months. She took her first couple steps. And after that, taking off, she's walking everywhere. I'm sure she'll be running soon. Moms with daughters always say like the girls are like off and running. Oh, yeah. So are you originally from Muscatine? So I'm actually originally from Mediapolis, um, which is down by Burlington. My husband, John, is originally from Muscatine. And he is a deputy with the sheriff's department here. Um, I was actually a dispatcher at the sheriff's office. So that's how we met. Owen's probably about two at the time that you get pregnant with B.O.? Yep. Yep. Okay. So did you know that he was going to be a boy? Yeah, we found out on our 20 week appointment. Boys were super excited um, to have another little brother. How did that pregnancy go? Everything feel good to you? you? Everything felt normal? Owen and Theo were actually IVF. Yeah, so um, when John and I started trying to have children, um, I had a couple of miscarriages um, in the beginning, and then I wasn't able to get pregnant after that. So we had did uh, we had done one IUI um, before Owen, which didn't take, um, and so then we moved into IVF. So Owen was our first IVF uh, baby. He was the fresh cycle, and so then after that cycle, we had I think eight embryos that we were able to freeze. So then between Owen and Theo, I had another miscarriage and um, really just kind of had another calling to, to have another baby. And so we did a, a frozen IVF cycle and that's how we got Theo. My pregnancy was pretty, pretty normal. I, I get um, gestational diabetes uh, with my pregnancy. So I did have gestational diabetes with him. Other than that, pretty normal. But IVF is stressful. So, you know, when you get pregnant, there's a lot of joy and there's a lot of worry in there. Oh, absolutely. You know, obviously there's always that worry, um, especially after you've had, I think I had four miscarriages by that point. And so there's always, you know, kind of that in your back of your mind that something, you know, bad's going to happen. You're always going to worry. 
I mean, it was hard. I had a good support system. My husband was fantastic going through IVF. I mean, it was hard, but at the same time, you know, we had already gone through it with Owen. Um, so I knew kind of what to expect. So were you always open about having carriages or is that something that you, um, you know, kept to yourself for a while or? Yeah, in the beginning, um, you know, I was pretty quiet about it. You know, unfortunately, I think that's just something women kind of suffer in silence, so to speak. That's not something that a lot of women like to talk about. Um, but after... Um, going through our IVF cycles, you know, we were more open about it, explaining why we were doing IVF. And then after losing Theo, you know, we're pretty open about them as well. You know, it, it's such a taboo subject talking about whether it's miscarriages or child loss. And I think in society today, we just need to make that more, we need to talk about it more. It doesn't need to be a, a taboo subject where, you know, we kind of steer clear of it and get uncomfortable. I was inducted at 39 weeks um, because of my gestational diabetes. Went in that morning, again, started the process, pretty easy going up until you kind of get that Pitocin going. Through the night, I started progressing. They broke my water about 10 o'clock in the morning is when I had Theo. <clears throat> he was nine pounds, three ounces, I believe. So a little bit on the on the bigger side, but both all of my children have been. Just this beautiful little chunky, chunky little boy coming out. Yeah, tell me what you remember about seeing his face. It's such a, a feeling that you can't describe, you know, for a senior child and especially going through the process of IVF and, you know, just all those emotions just really kind of hit you at that moment when you first see your child. I remember my best friend is a photographer here in town and so she did birth photos of Theo, um, which I'm so thankful for. Um, and one of the, the first photos from his birth is, you know, he comes out and he just instantly grabs onto my finger. So that's one of my favorite memories from his birth. You know, of course, seeing his, his little chubby face with those <laughs> chubby cheeks because he was such a little chunk. And he had such beautiful dark brown eyes. Such a cute little baby. Normal time in the hospital. Everybody goes home right on schedule. Yeah, life with a two-year-old and a newborn. And Noah was eight or nine at the time. Um, you know, so he was super helpful and you know, he was helpful on, you know, Hey, go get me a diaper or, you know, can you hold him for a little bit so I can, you know, do whatever. Um, Owen absolutely loved him. It was sweet to see, you know, the boys really, you know, gravitate to, to Theo and, and the new baby. What's the baseline knowledge that you have at this time about safe sleep? You know, you hear so much about it and, you know, you want to do the right thing for your baby so like what what were your policies at the time at home how was he sleeping what were you guys up to so um at that time you know i knew just kind of the very basics of base sleep of safe sleep you know the abcs is what they call it you know alone back in a crib um, and that was really it um you know looking back now um there wasn't a lot of education and discussion about it um with my ob doctors um, or even in the hospital before we came home with either of the kids. Um, and that's something that I have addressed actually with the university. We we kind of have partnered with them a little bit. So we can talk about that a little bit later. But, you know, that's something that we have addressed with them is there's just really not a lot of education on safe sleep. Um, you know, whether you're at an OB appointment um, or once you, you have your child in the hospital or even at uh, postnatal checkups, it really isn't discussed. I think with Theo at one of my postnatal checkups, my doctor had asked once, you know, where is he sleeping? Is he sleeping in a crib or a bassinet or, um, you know, one of those questions. And at that time he was sleeping in a bassinet in our room. Um, but that was the extent of it. 
There really was no other education that was given to us. When we discharge from the hospital, uh, the university kind of gives you this huge packet of information, you know, that has anything, everything in there from feeding and, you know, what do you do about people crying and car seat safety? I mean, everything under the sun about caring for a newborn. And there's just, you know, a tiny little paragraph in there about safe sleep. And of course, as a new parent, you know, you're so exhausted. The last thing that I had time to do was sit and go through this ginormous packet of information. So we never did. You know, that was another thing that we, we've addressed with the university. Again, one little paragraph in there of just the very basics of safe sleep. And there's so much more about it now that, you know, I have, I have learned and researched. So with Theo, like I said, just the very basics of it. Um, he was sleeping in a bassinet in our room. Um, we were getting ready because he was 12 weeks old. So we were kind of getting to that point um, that we were going to move him to his crib. At the bare minimum, it was no blankets and, um, you know, swaddled nice and tight. Yep, yep, the very basics. With Theo, we got uh, one of the swaddles, the halo swaddles, at one of our doctor's appointments, you know, which is fabulous because they are safe for sleep. The only thing that I have ran across and um, have noticed, um, even with Theo, you know, they give you the swaddle, but nobody educated me on it. How to use it appropriately, when to stop using it. And that was never really discussed. And so that's another thing that we are addressing with the university as well as with our foundation is really getting all of that information out to parents. So you have 12 weeks off of work. Was the plan to go back after 12 or what was your post-maternity leave plan? So I was off for six weeks um, and my husband actually was off for six weeks. So with both of us working for the county, we are only able to take 12 weeks off total combined between the two of us. So I took the first six weeks off and then I went back to work. And then John was off for six weeks when I went back to work. You know, we didn't want to send, you know, our six week old to to a daycare at that time. You know, so it was nice that we were able to at least both take those that time off for him. Yeah. And so at some point you're um you're knowing that your husband's got to go back to work. And so you're making arrangements, I'm sure, to figure out what what Theo's care situation is going to be. And so, But you felt comfortable with, with uh, the arrangements that you had made? So the babysitter that we had um, used, uh, we actually used with Owen. So Owen had been going to the same daycare since Owen was 12 weeks old. And she was state registered uh, with the state of Iowa through DHS. And it was an in-home daycare um, that was actually in our neighborhood, um, so not far from our home. So, you know, we, we didn't have any huge red flags two days that Theo went to daycare. Um, since Owen had, you know, gone there for so long, we liked that she was state registered through DHS. So there was, you know, some oversight from DHS. You know, we liked that she was in our neighborhood. She was kind of close to our house. Um, and we liked that it was a smaller environment, um, you know, in an in-home versus, you know, a huge daycare facility. Not every daycare is perfect. So, you know, there were a few things, but again, no huge blaring red flags. You know, bottom line is you did what every working parent does. You look at the research, you try to find something close to your home. By now you're comfortable with this situation because your other son was doing well there. You didn't do anything different than any other working parent does. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard to find daycares, you know. There's just not a lot of resources out there on finding a good daycare. 
you know, later on, um, unfortunately, afterwards, we had found out that there is a listing on the DHS website of state registered daycares, and you can actually see all of their yearly inspection reports on there. Um, but that was just not something that we knew, unfortunately, prior to Theo's death. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to find a good daycare, a good daycare that meets your needs. You know, and I, I tell parents who, you know, first find out they're pregnant, I said, it may seem early, you may only be 12 weeks pregnant, but you need to start looking for a daycare now because trying to find a good daycare that you can trust is like finding a needle in a haystack. I remember hours being so difficult. Some of them wanting to close at four o'clock <laughs> thinking, no, there's no way we could do that. You're relying so much on just like, mom guts and just trying to make the best decision that you can and especially as a new mom you know you got all these other things going on you know you're probably not sleeping your newborn's up at night trying to visit these daycares um you know before you even send your child there i mean it, it's not not easy by any means what can you tell me about the last days of theo's life Theo died on his third day of daycare. He went on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And Thursday is the day that he had died. You know, obviously dreading sending him to daycare like any any parent would. <laughs> I remember he had just learned how to splash in the bathtub in his little infant uh, little bathtub. So I have a couple of videos of him splashing around, just laughing and smiling and giggling. And actually that morning um, that he had died, it was actually my brother's birthday. So I had taken a couple of videos that morning of Theo um, before I had left for work to send to my brother, you know, saying, hey, happy birthday. Um, and, you know, he's just, you know, happy little boy. He was in his little bouncer, just kicking away. Um, he loved being in his little bouncer because um, he would kick his, his chubby little legs and, and get to rocking and, and uh, bouncing in it. A happy little guy. Um, he was always, always, always sticking his tongue out, um, which a lot of the photos that we have, he is. So just this chubby little baby with his tongue always sticking out. And none of my other two children have ever really stuck their tongues out like he did. Um, so that's something that sticks out with him. But really that last week was just, you know, nothing out of the ordinary, just, you know, normal, healthy baby. So did you drop him off that morning? So John dropped him off that morning, took a couple of videos, sent them to my brother that morning and, you know, gave him a kiss and left for work. And then I know John, you know, fed him breakfast and then took him over to the sitters. What happened next? When did you find out something was wrong? So I got a call um, about 2.30. Um, she called my cell phone. I was at work. Um, I was actually on the phone at work, so I couldn't answer my cell phone right away. But I thought it was odd that she was calling because she didn't ever um, call. She would usually text, you know, if, you know, something was up or she needed something. So that kind of threw up a red flag. So I called her back right away. All I remember her saying is Theo was not breathing. I couldn't tell you much after that. Um, but it's still, you know, two years later, it's still kind of a fog of events leading up to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, all I remember is her just saying Theo is not breathing. Do you process something really bad has happened? Or are you just like, I just need to get there right away and figure it out? Yeah, I mean, I didn't at that time process that, you know, something horrible was going on. I, I don't think I processed anything. Vaguely remember asking her, well, is he breathing now? Before I hung up and she said, well, EMS is here. 
and then you know I hang up and drive as fast as I can um, to town. It's probably a, a five ten minute drive from my work to her house, and that was probably the longest five ten minute drive ever. And it was you know two thirty, so school's getting ready to get out, so traffic's a little bit more congested, and I'm. <laughs> you know, driving like a mad woman, um, to get there. And, you know, of course you got all these cars. So I'm just freaking out and, you know, of course yelling in my car, you know, like road rage of, you know, get out of my way. Um, I remember turning into our, um, little neighborhood, um, area. And I, I probably turned that corner 40, 50 miles an hour. And I I remember hitting my gas just to get to her house and there was a gentleman outside of his home just kind of looking at like, what is going on? But yeah, I mean, that was probably the longest drive ever of my life. I remember pulling up and just throwing my car in park and running up to into her yard. My husband comes out and meets me in the yard. He's crying um, and he just drops to his knees in the yard. And I think at that point is when it hit something something bad is happening you've probably never seen your husband like that before Mm -mm. no no he doesn't cry often um i think the only time i've seen him really cry is probably our wedding day and the day our children were born so i remember going in and ems is performing cpr on theo seeing your son you know your 12 week old son's lifeless body on the floor with you know cpr being performed and you know he's got tubes and stuff for ivs coming out of him is not an image that will probably ever leave my mind. You know, I close my eyes at night and, you know, that image is always there. So, you know, unfortunately that's just an image that will stick with me for the rest of my life. And that's not something that I would wish on any parent. There's no words to describe the scene, you know, of seeing that. At some point, did they take him to the hospital? Yeah, so again, I... It's kind of a blur. I couldn't tell you how long that we were there before they took him to the hospital. It may have been five minutes, but it it felt like hours. But anyways, they loaded him up in the ambulance. um, And we actually rode with, I think it was the chief Italian from the fire department. Um, He actually took us to the hospital. And, you know, at the time, you know, I couldn't understand why I couldn't ride in the ambulance with Theo. You know, looking back now, you know, now I know. Um... And I just remember hitting my knees and just praying. Um, you know, at that time, I still didn't quite comprehend everything going on. Um, you know, and I'm not a huge religious person, but at the time, you know, that's all I could do. You know, we really didn't know much about what had happened or, you know, really anything. I sat in that room for, again, that seems like a lifetime, but it may have only been a few minutes. Um, and then finally, the, the doctor came and got us um, and took us into the trauma room. They were still working on him. From what I can remember, I think the doctor, you know, explained some things to me again. It, it's kind of all a blur. So I remember touching Theo's leg and just shocked at how cold his leg was and just begging him to wake up. Unfortunately, he never did. Time of death was called at 3.08 p.m. that day. And I just remember letting out the most heart-wrenching scream um, that, you know, any mother would do. Um, and I just kept saying over and over, no, 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 no. So then after that, they asked if we wanted to hold him. Um, so I did. I remember picking him up and he let out this, 
like a gurgling noise from all the air that was pumped into him. And so for a split second, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, he's making noises, you know, help him. But then, you know, it was explained to me, you know, what exactly it was. And so from there, we just sat in the ER trauma room probably for hours, just holding him. I told him over and over again, you know, how sorry I was, you know, how much I loved him. Investigators came in and were asking us questions. At one point, the ME had to come in and do their um, investigation on him. And then at one point, um, one of the detectives had said, hey, you know, which funeral home do you want? You know, that's not something that any parent ever thinks of. So we just chose one here in town that we were familiar with, who were fabulous, by the way. And so they had contacted them for us. Um, and he said, you know, they're going to be here in however long it was going to be. We sat there for hours holding him. You know, both John and myself were holding him. Um, and then our family members were able to hold him as well. My good friend who lives here in town, again, is a photographer. And so I had called her and she actually came out. Um, and as weird as it sounds, she said, do you want me to take photos? Um, and so I said, yes. And you know, at the time, it seemed crazy. You know, I don't want to ever remember this. It's not like I, they're pictures that I want to look at. But now that I'm so thankful for him, because, you know, that's the last time, you know, I was able to to hold my son. So then at one point, the investigator said, you know, the funeral home's here. And I just remember looking at the investigator and saying, how do I let him go? You know, how do you, how do you turn your child over? Sorry. How do you hand your child over to a funeral director, knowing that you're never going to hold your baby again? And he couldn't give me an answer. You know, it was just tears and silence. You know, there was no answer. There was no easy answer to, to how you do that. So they came. We're a little familiar with the folks that work at the funeral home. And so, you know, handing him over to the funeral director knowing who that you know knowing the funeral director you know made it a little bit a little bit easier um just knowing that he was in good hands and i knew that they would take care of him you know so as you're as you're you know holding him and talking to him and you're saying you know you're, you're saying i'm so sorry what were you sorry for in that moment i honestly didn't know um because i didn't know what had happened yet yeah. I just knew I was sorry for whatever had happened to him. And I was sorry that I wasn't there to keep him safe. And I was sorry that, you know, whether, you know, for me, it was hard as a mother because I didn't know if he was scared, you know, with whatever had happened, you know, if he was alone, you know, I just had no idea what had happened at the time. So I was just sorry, you know, sorry that I wasn't able to keep him safe. That friend, the photographer friend, that's a really good friend. Yeah. In that moment, you know, taking a picture was not something that anybody would ever think of, but I'm so thankful for it now. I tell parents and especially new parents, you know, take all the photos. You know, my husband used to give me so much grief about all the photos that I would take on my phone of, of our kids. And, um, you know, looking back now, you know, that's all you have, um, unfortunately, when something like this happens. So, of course, he doesn't give me grief anymore when I tell him to smile for a photo. You know, again, they're not photos that, you know, we pull out and look at all the time, but they're special in that that's the last time I was able to hold my son. Oddly enough, even at the funeral home, she, um, during his funeral, took photos. Again, 
not something that you're going to pull out and look at, but very, very powerful images. Um, it took me a long time to look at them after she gave them to me. It probably took me almost a year to be able to sit down and look at them. Again, just very, very powerful images. Um, I actually use some of those images now when I do presentations to, you know, to any kind of groups where we talk about about safe sleep and, and talk about Theo because I think it as hard as it is, is for us to see those photos, I think it just it makes it real. It puts a, a face to infant loss. It puts a face to how deadly unsafe sleep can be. You hear about it, you know, you hear about babies who, you know, have died from unsafe sleep. And you always think that's not going to happen to me. You know, we never in a million years ever imagined or thought this would happen to our family. Showing those photos as hard as it is for us, I think really drives it home that this is the reality this is the consequences of unsafe sleep. At any point before leaving the hospital, did you have any clue what had happened? Mm -mm. They're just trying to assess his immediate needs right now. Yep. Yep. We had no idea. You know, part of, as a mom who had gestational diabetes, you don't go see your mind, oh my God, did I cause something? Um, you know, was there some underlying medical condition? Um, but he had just had his, his, uh, 12 week checkup, everything was normal, you know, so everything goes through your mind um, before you really get that definite answer of, of a cause of death. Not knowing, I think for a while was the hardest. I want to say it was maybe a week or so until we actually got the call from the medical examiner um, because an autopsy was done and the cause of death was unknown. How do you plan a funeral for a three month old? How did you decide what was best to honor his life yeah the quick answer is you don't you don't it was a lot of autopilot um i vividly remember sitting at the funeral home to make arrangements you know all our families there with us and i'm kind of strolling through one of their uh books for quotes or whatever to put in like the little i don't know pamphlet or whatever they give you at, at funerals and i'm just you know reading through them and i just break down and I just said over and over, I should not be here. I should not be planning my three-month-old son's funeral. You should not have to plan your child's funeral. You know, they're asking you all these questions, and it's just, it's nothing that you ever think about, um, you know, when you're having babies. You're, you're thinking about a nursery, and you're thinking about, you know, down the road of first days of school and walking, and, you know, all those things. Um, never in a million years do you ever think, of planning a funeral for your child you know they ask well who's going to do the service and i don't know <laughs> you know it's just things that you don't think of and so you know i was thankful that my family was there you know you wanted to honor his life you know however short it was and one thing um my dad is a nurse practitioner down in burlington and works with a lot of hospice patients and so he had mentioned he works with some hospice nurses who do hand molds and so he had brought up the idea of these nurses coming and doing these hand molds of Theo. We were actually there when they were doing them. Um, I actually held Theo while they, while they did them. And they're beautiful hand molds that we treasure today. So we're so thankful for that. You know, things like that, that you just don't think of at the time um, of doing. 
So actually with our foundation, we do hand molds for other families um, that have lost children. Um, unfortunately, we've done them twice now for families that have lost um, young children. Talking with their family and their moms, you know, they're just so thankful for those molds as well because, you know, unfortunately, that's all you have left. Yeah, yeah. So describe for me how you found out and, and what you can tell me about the circumstances of how he passed. So getting the news, um, you know, on one hand, it's, I don't want to say a relief, but in a sense, it was a little bit of a relief just to know what had happened. You know, again, the unknown is, is so hard. Um, so knowing what had caused it, um, you know, gives you, I don't even know how to call it, honestly, because it's not relief. It's not, it's not anything. It's just, you know. Um, but at the same time, getting that news was hard. Um, because not only are you, you know, we were upset knowing the cause of death because then everything goes through your mind of, you know, was he scared in those last moments? You know, did he suffer? You know, those are things that, that still haunt us. So all of that goes through your mind, but then knowing that it happened at the hands of somebody that we thought we could trust, um, just kind of really compounded all those feelings, all of that anger. So then, um, the ME actually came in and met with us and sat down and went through the whole autopsy report with us. Again, not something that I wish on any parent to have to read their, their infant son's autopsy report. But for me, it gave a little bit of, again, I don't want to say relief, but just knowing what had happened in the cause. You just can't describe, I think, any of those feelings of getting that news and, and seeing in black and white print, you know, everything that was done to your, your child at an autopsy. Um, just, I don't wish that on anybody. You know, so at that point we knew the cause of death, but we didn't know what had actually caused um, the death or what had happened. It was a month or two um, until we really kind of had better full picture of what had happened. There being some pending litigation, we can't really say exactly what had happened, um, but it, his death was because of unsafe sleep practices. Going home that day, that night, that Thursday was hard. You know, all of your family, you know, swarms to your house um, and you're so numb. Um, at that point, I am still in shock. It doesn't really hit you. Um, we didn't go home right away um, when we left the hospital because I, I couldn't face going home because I knew there was baby things everywhere. You know, all of this stuff was still everywhere. There was bottles, you know, in the kitchen sink. There was bottles on the counter that, you know, were in the drying rack. Was, and so thankfully, my family had gone to the house first and kind of gathered it all up and put it in a separate room. So you know, when, as soon as you walk in the door, that wasn't the first thing that, that you had to face. But I remember going to bed and Theo wasn't sleeping through the night at that point. And so I remember waking up when he would normally wake up throughout the night, just because my body was so used to waking up with him. And just that quiet, quiet moment of waking up and your child's not there um, was hard. Then waking up the next day, um, that Friday morning, is I think when it really hit both of us, um, you know, it was still quiet. We didn't wake up to, you know, a baby crying because he was hungry. We didn't wake up to his smiling face. And I think that's really when it, it hit both of us was 
was that next day? It's a grief that will be a lifetime grief. It's not something that you're just going to get over. You know, I've had a few people when I still talk about them and, and bring them up, kind of look at you weird, like, okay, it's been two years. But as a parent, that will, that's a grief that'll be a lifetime. So you just had the two year. Did you do anything significant that day? His actual first birthday um, was hard um, last June. Um, and so we actually had kind of a little birthday party um, at our house for him. It's not obviously, you know, you want to celebrate his first birthday, but it's hard, you know, to celebrate the first birthday. Um, so we had family come over. And then on the first anniversary of his death, we uh, released butterflies that day as a remembrance for him. This year for his birthday, we actually, now that we have our, our foundation, um, we actually had our first big fundraiser. So with that fundraiser, we had our fundraising walk, rolling for safe sleep. And then we just had a huge family fun day. And at our fundraiser, we released butterflies for a second birthday as well. Um, so I think we had 200 uh, walkers for that event. Um, and everybody who registered got a butterfly. So we released over 200 butterflies for his birthday, which was was awesome. And it was a beautiful sight. And then his two-year anniversary, um, death anniversary um, that we just went through just a couple of weeks ago. We actually just got together um, at a good friend's house, you know, lit a couple of remembrance candles for him, um, you know, kind of shared some stories of him, and I really just kind of leaned on on some friends for that. Um, you know, it's a hard day. You know, those two days are probably the hardest. So it was nice just to spend time with some family and friends and, and get through the day. I found, I think, you know, the first year is hard, but I think the second year was harder you know, after the first year, you know, everybody kind of checks in on you and, hey, how you doing, you know, and after that, unfortunately, with child loss, you know, people just stop reaching out, not that it's intentional, you know, I, I think for some folks, it gets awkward and, you know, uncomfortable, um, so, you know, at that two-year mark and beyond, I think is when you kind of get that more, you kind of lonely, not as many people are reaching out, um, so it was a little bit harder. But it's also worth mentioning that you were grieving in the isolation of a global pandemic. Being a lost parent, um, you know, you we have awesome family and friends who are, are always there for us, um, you know, and, and are shoulder to cry on. But if you're not a lost parent yourself, it's hard to imagine all the feelings. And we actually go to a support group um, once a month. Um, it's called the Compassionate Friends who we love the group um they're a fabulous support system um but it's nice to go and talk to folks who who know how you feel um you don't have to explain why you feel certain feelings they just get it but yeah i mean you know obviously covid threw a wrench and everything and that really just kind of makes that isolation worse because there's not as many resources that were available for well and how does dealing with like a criminal investigation then impact that grief because you're you know i'm sure you're getting a lot of information and correspondence from prosecutors and you know so you're there's there's two things going on at the same time yeah i mean it, it's been hard because i think with the criminal um charges and the criminal trial still pending you can't really get that full closure um on one hand you know it's frustrating um, you know, because our family, you know, it, it's brought up every time I, you know, have to speak to a lawyer um, or our attorney. 
I know trial is going to be scheduled for this date, so you kind of prepare yourself mentally of, you know, having to go through a trial. Um, and then, it, you know, with it being continued for certain, you know, different reasons with COVID, you know, thrown into that, um, and it just get, keeps getting pushed back more, um, you know, it, it makes it hard to, to really process a lot of those feelings. So meanwhile, though, established the Theo Wolf Foundation. So that's something you must have known, like, we're, we're going to do something. So for me, I needed something. I needed some kind of positive outlet for kind of dealing with my grief. Going through our, our experience of not knowing a whole lot about safe sleep besides, you know, the very basics and knowing that, you know, this death was 100% preventable, you know, I don't want that to happen to any other parents. No parent should have to go through what we've gone through. So for me, I think I knew pretty early on that I wanted to do something. I wasn't quite sure what at that point, Um, but I knew I needed to focus a lot of my grief, a lot of my anger, a lot of that rage um, into something positive uh, for myself. Um, So we initially started um, in December of 2019, uh, we started, it was called Thoughts for Theo, um, which really focused on in the month of December, our family specifically did uh, random acts of kindness every day during that month. Um, and so we had shared it on social media and a lot of, you know, family, community members, friends um, did the same thing um, and did the random acts of kindness. We made up little cards, uh, like business cards that we left with our random acts of kindness saying, you know, it was done in his memory, you know, please pass along the kindness. So that was kind of the start of it. Um, so we did that um, during that month of, of December. Um, so there, it, it kind of just got my wheels turning of, you know, how do, how do we make a bigger impact? You'll never hear us say that Theo died for a reason. Um, you'll never hear us say that this was God's plan, um, because it's not a good plan, <laughs> to put it nicely. I needed, I needed a purpose. Um, I needed to kind of put all of that energy into something. So I met with an attorney here in town and, and talked about setting up a nonprofit. Um, that way we could educate the community um, on infant safe sleep and hopefully prevent this from happening to any other family. So our focus was educating on, on infant safe sleep, but as well as daycare safety. You know, as a parent who's gone through the daycare system, I think there's so much lacking even on the daycare side of, you know, what parents should know, you know, daycare safety and education. There's just so much, I think, that parents, again, don't know. Uh, you know, we had no idea on some of the things, resources out there. And I don't think you really know unless you either ask or, you know, you just do some Googling. So that was kind of our main focus in starting the foundation was to really educate and, and prevent this from happening. And so you said you've worked with the university where he was born. And what are some of your goals right now and where you want to take the foundation? Kind of our first goal, um, we've done you know a lot of fundraising. So our first goal is to order equipment, so to speak, that we need to start our, our safe sleep kits. So that's one thing that our foundation is going to put out to, to parents. So included with that is going to be a halo safe sleep sack. It's actually going to be the wearable blanket. It's not the swaddle. Most hospitals are giving out the swaddles to parents, um, but that swaddling has to stop at either first signs of rolling or um, approximately eight weeks old. 
Um, my infant daughter, Lainey, just started rolling at five weeks. You know, at that point when she started to roll, I knew I had to stop swaddling um, and go into the, the wearable blankets. And not a lot of, of parents have those. They don't have them handy. And so I want to be able to give those to families so they have them when that time comes to stop swaddling. So you're working on having those kits and then how will they be distributed? They'll be given to every parent or what, what, are your, what is your goal? So um, included with that, it's also going to be a pacifier. There's a book out um, that was actually made by another nonprofit um, whose son died from unsafe sleep, Charlie's Kids. So that there's a, a children's board book out about safe sleep that will be included, as well as some pamphlets and stuff, information on safe sleep. So that's, we're working with the university on if we can give that out to parents who, who doctor there um, or deliver there. Um, I'm going to work with some local organizations here, um, our local hospital, public health. We actually have a homeless shelter here, so I'm going to reach out to them, you know, if they have any infants that come in, you know, that they can use that or give to parents. Literally, I'm going to reach out to probably every agency I can think of that would have some type of interaction with a parent who may have an infant. Again, my friend who's a photographer does newborn photography, so she's going to have them in her studio and hand them out to to every um, newborn session that she does. So again, any way that I can get it into the hands of parents. Families all over this area will hear the name Theo. Yep. And that was, that was, you know, one of my goals, you know, as a mom, you know, you, you know, you want your kid to, to do well in the world. Um, and, you know, when Theo died, you know, my biggest fear was the world forgetting him. Um, so this was kind of my way of still carrying on his name, still carrying on his legacy and, and honoring him in a, in a positive way. So do you guys have any events coming up or we're fundraising right now? How can people support you? So we don't have any current events um, really scheduled for this year. We had our, our huge um, fundraiser in June for his birthday, but it was a huge success. I think we raised um, $30,000 with that one event. Super, super successful. We had such an awesome day. Um, but at this point, we're, we're really kind of focusing on ordering that stuff for our safe sleep sacks and really wanting to get that information out there, safe sleep sacks. Um, and I'm talking to a couple mommy and me groups um, and sharing our story and information. So I'm not sure if we'll do anything in uh, the winter. We'll kind of just play it by ear at this point. Um, but our annual uh, strolling for safe sleep is going to be the annual thing in June every year for Theo's birthday. Um, so we're already starting to plan uh, for June of next year, getting vendors on the list. And, you know, it, it's a ton of work to put together. We actually did it in two months this year. We uh, became a nonprofit in March and we said, OK, well, you know, what's our fundraising going to look like? And I knew I wanted to do something in June for his birthday. So from March until June, we planned this whole huge um, fundraiser. So I, I'm excited that I have a little bit more time <laughs> this go around. Um, but I think that also just gives us more time to, to really make it bigger and better. I'm going to end on this question since we kind of sort of began here. What role has Lainey played in <laughs> helping your family move forward without Theo? You know, she's kind of been, she's been our, our hope and our bright light in a very dark time. You know, I got pregnant in February of 2020, so it wasn't super long after we had lost Theo. I had a lot of reservations, and actually Lainey 
was conceived naturally, so she is not an IVF baby. So, you know, we never thought that we could could have children without doing IVF. So she's kind of our little surprise baby. Theo sent us her, um, you know, after having three boys, we now have a little girl who is just as sassy and energetic as them. But I truly think that she was sent from Theo, you know, kind of as cliche as that sounds. When she was born, she looked just like Theo, which, you know, on one hand was kind of strikes a chord. But on the other hand, you know, I, I knew it was I knew it was a sign from Theo saying, you know, I'm okay and I'm gonna make sure that you guys are okay. So she's definitely been a light um, in the dark times. She is such a happy baby, and she was the missing piece that you know we didn't really know that we were missing. Wow, I just I can't get over what a miracle she is. She is, she is quite the miracle. She actually, when she was born, spent 11 days in the NICU. Um, when she was born, she had an ovarian cyst and it had twisted while she was in utero. And um, so they actually went in and some laparoscopic surgery. I think she was four days old. It had actually twisted the ovary and calcified and, and killed her ovary. Um, so her ovary was removed, but you would, would never know now as active and happy as she is that anything was ever wrong. But yeah, we spent 11 days in the NICU and after losing Theo, that was, that was hard to see your baby in a NICU all hooked up to all the same tubing and monitors and so forth. Um, so that really was a hard and trying time. She is thriving. She is healthy. I, like I said, you would never know now that she, you know, was as sick as she was when she was born and she's perfect now. Thank you so much for sharing Theo's story with me. Well, thank you for having us. I I greatly appreciate it. Any, any way in any, any outlet where we can share Theo's story and get that word out there on how important it is for, for infant safe sleep, we are we're glad to share it. Yeah, yeah. Through this podcast, I've interviewed so many mothers who have a story to tell, who have loss, who have heartbreak. And after each one, I recognize what a privilege it is to have someone share their story with me. And so to Lisa, thank you. I am honored and I understand the privilege of having the ability to have a platform to share your story, to share your message, and to let you know that you're not alone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of On a Mother Level. When it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.